LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Robert Schock, faculty member at Boston University and author of many books including Voyages of the Pyramid Builders, The True Origins of the Pyramids from Lost Egypt to Ancient America, Pyramid Quest, Secrets of the Great Pyramid and the Dawn of Civilization, and his most recent book Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future, which we shall be discussing today. If you believe that this world age is the only one that there has ever been, or that our civilization represents the peak of human potential, the truth may come as quite a surprise. Hello and welcome, Robert Schock, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, Robert, we're here today to discuss uh, your latest book, uh, which is entitled Forgotten Civilization, uh, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future. And the background uh, against which this is set um, is basically a lot of what your uh, life's work has been, which is looking at um, ancient civilizations and uh, different, perhaps, stories about them uh, compared to our conventional understanding. And the conventional understanding is basically that um, some point in the distant past, we evolved from apes. Somehow it's never quite been explained. We came out of Africa. And then after thousands, millions of years of lots of primitive societies, civilization and agriculture, as we would recognize, it came along. We had Sumer and Egypt and other ancient civilizations. But work that you did in particular uh, earlier in your career in dating the Great Sphinx in Egypt, or rather redating it, has led down a sort of rabbit hole, which tells us that our the popular mainstream history of origins of mankind and civilization itself are not quite what we think they are. So perhaps you could just sort of sum that all that up in a nutshell for us. Well, in a nutshell, you said it uh, quite correctly. I, back in the 1980s, I'm a geologist. I received my PhD in geology and geophysics at Yale University back in 1984, so that really dates me, perhaps. And in the late 1980s, I was introduced formally to Egypt, to Egyptology, Egyptology, the Great Sphinx, and I was actually invited to go to Egypt by someone who has now become my colleague and close friend, John Anthony West, who is essentially an independent Egyptologist, and he had suspected based on the work of some of the very early Egyptologists of the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries, and also based on the work of a fellow who I have very high regard for. He's long deceased. I think he died in 1961. But Schwar de Lubitsch, who did a number of very meticulous studies in Egypt, there were suggestions that the Great Sphinx, 
did not date to 2500 BC, as all the classical Egyptologists state in modern times, but that in fact, it may have had its initial origins much earlier. And John Anthony West thought this was really a topic that a geologist, someone trained in geology, could study by looking at the Sphinx. And he essentially was right. So I went to Egypt first in 1990, specifically to study the Great Sphinx from a geological point of view. And what I found was absolutely amazing, in part because I went there assuming that the Egyptologists knew exactly what they were talking about. I assumed that there could not be any discrepancy between what I would find as a geologist and what the Egyptologists have been saying for all these years. But I was really flabbergasted to find that when I went to, went to Egypt for the first time, I, my initial study of the Sphinx, what I found is that the body, the oldest portion of the Sphinx, I now realize, what I call the core body, was weathered by rain, by rainfall, by rainwater, water runoff. Essentially, it was weathered by elements that you do not find in Egypt today to extreme extent. It was weathered by these elements. The Great Sphinx sits on the Giza Plateau, with the Great Pyramid and the other pyramids on the plateau. This area has been hyper-arid. It's the eastern edge of the Sahara Desert, and it has not seen significant rainfall, certainly not to cause the weathering and erosion I was seeing on the body of the Sphinx. It has not seen that level of rainfall for 5,000-plus years. So right away, as a geologist, I said, there's something wrong here. There's some discrepancy here. I didn't want to go public with this, however. I came back to Egypt. I went back to Egypt several times. I enlisted a colleague of mine, Thomas DeBecky, Dr. Thomas DeBecky, who's a geophysicist. We did seismic studies around the base of the Sphinx. I wanted to look at subsurface data that I could use to check the surface data, to look at subsurface weathering, essentially mineralogical changes. I did a lot of other work that I won't go into now. And my conclusion by 1991-92 was that the core body, the oldest portion of the Sphinx, had to date back thousands of years earlier than 2500 BC. The Sphinx, I determined, has been reworked. It's been repaired in dynastic times. It was reused. The head is too small for the body. So it became very clear to me that the Sphinx itself was carved and then recarved in dynastic times. Something that most people don't realize is that only the head sits above the level of the Giza Plateau. To carve the body, they actually had to carve down into the limestone bedrock and they removed huge blocks that they used to build temples in front of the Sphinx. So I was able to do a lot of really good geology. I was able to determine that the oldest portions go back thousands of years earlier. I presented this initially at an annual meeting of the Geological Society of America. I had hundreds of geologists there. They all agreed with me that the geology was good, that the conclusions were good, and I thought this was great. Then 
within a day, the Egyptologists got wind of it, and they were just going after me like crazy. They were saying this was absolutely impossible. And really where they were coming from is the paradigm that you mentioned. According to the paradigm, the classical archaeological Egyptological paradigm, humanity did not reach a level of civilization until about, say, 3500 BC, the time of Sumeria, the time of earliest dynastic Egypt by about 3100 BC or so. And before that, I was told over and over, people were very primitive. They were hunters. They were gatherers. They forged for a living. There's no way they could create something like the Great Sphinx or even a Proto-Sphinx. So this really created a firestorm, it really created a lot of antagonism, essentially between two disciplines is one way to look at it. The natural sciences, myself as a geology geologist and the Egyptological community and more generally the archaeological community. So that's where things were in the early 1990s. Um, and since then, I've developed a lot more evidence, which I assume we'll want to get into, uh, demonstrating that civilization actually goes back much earlier than the fourth millennium BC, much earlier than the dynastic Egyptians, much earlier than the Sumerians. And as I see it now, that flowering of civilization in the fourth millennium BC is actually a reemergence of civilization after what I consider a dark age or a dark period for thousands of years. But civilization actually goes back much, much earlier in geological terms back to the end of the last ice age. You know, the initial reaction um, to that sort of information and in fact, your, your work in Egypt is a whole thing unto itself and you've written about that extensively. And if people want to explore that in great detail, they can. But as you say, you're, you've moved on since then and added to all that. Um, but yeah, as I was saying, people's reaction to this information would be, well, where's the evidence for this? Well, there is actually some evidence and it increase, it's increasingly emerging and we'll come on to some of that. But an important chunk um, of your new book, Forgotten Civilization, is the role of solar activity in the history of the Earth. Actually, you detail how disastrous, well, disastrous for the Earth, huge solar events and other plasma discharges, various things happening you know, in the galaxy, in the solar system, have impacted Earth dramatically. And this actually goes a great way to explaining why evidence for certain uh, periods of time in the past may be scant because they may have been all but wiped out. Yeah, this is exactly the case. And one of the things that my critics uh, leveled at me very early on is why isn't there other evidence? Why is there not more evidence? And uh, you just hit upon one of the things that I talk about in Forgotten Civilization at length, and that is that our sun is in unstable. It goes through periods of instability. It goes through periods when there are major solar outbursts, what are technically known as coronal mass ejections and associated phenomena. It literally, in some cases, uh, fries certain parts of the earth. Uh, literally, you have huge, what are known as electrical discharges, plasma discharges uh, hitting the earth. It causes major climatic changes. It will set fires, for instance, it will literally incinerate material on the surface of the earth. And this sounds wild and crazy to some people who have never 
uh, seen the evidence or haven't thought about this or don't realize, as most geologists do, that what we see in the present day is not necessarily the way the Earth has been in the past. In fact, we know it's not been the way we see it uh, today for all of the past. There are major changes on Earth. There are periods when we undergo Essentially, to use a term that, and I don't want to sound um, the wrong way, but there are major cataclysms that occur, major catastrophes that occur on Earth. And one of these occurred toward the end of the last ice age, or at the end of the last ice age, and caused major disruption on Earth, would have destroyed much evidence of this earlier civilization, would have, in fact, cause massive rain because you would melt glaciers, water was being evaporated from the oceans, from lakes, so you had very high content in the atmosphere. This would have caused massive rains. We actually see in ancient legends and myths, for instance, uh, these things described. Everyone knows about Noah's flood, but flood stories are known around the world, and I believe date back to this period. Game back to the Sphinx. You had a period when there was much more rain, massive rains, massive um, water runoff, and I believe at this point that this ties in with this early evidence I saw in the 1990s of a very different climatic regime for the original Sphinx. What I might call the proto-sphinx or the core body of the sphinx. So there's a lot of evidence, I believe, that's now tying together in a comprehensive picture that I didn't have 20 years ago. Yes, and when you go and um, look uh, for evidence, you look into the myths and legends that uh, indigenous peoples have, um, this idea of a great catastrophe is universal. Uh, it takes different forms. You know, sometimes it is fire from the sky, but the flood thing is, is you know, the deluge is particularly prevalent. And it's almost, we even seem to, those of us quite disconnected from our sort of indigenous roots, seem to have almost a species memory of catastrophe. I would agree. I would agree. We do have, it seems like, the species memory back in, you know, sort of very deep down that there was a catastrophe that we have suffered from catastrophe, and I think it's quite remarkable. And I did not come from this background. I come from a natural science background, a geology background, although I was exposed to other things. I was, I've been blessed having been exposed to many different things, even from an early age. But when you look at the myths and legends, and I say that in no disrespectful way, because I find that myths and legends, indigenous myths and legends, ancient recountings carry a lot of, I believe, information. So when you look at these around the world, there are incredible similarities. As you say, flood stories, deluge stories are found almost universally. You have legends of going through a major catastrophe. You have legends of people going underground and then re-emerging so many people actually are many indigenous cultures, many ancient cultures actually talk about people going underground and reemerging. I mention this because this is exactly how I believe you would escape a major solar outburst, a major solar catastrophe. The best way would to be to seek protection, whether it was in caves or uh, artificial underground shelters. And we have now lots of archaeological evidence of that 
very type of activity happening at that remote period. You also have, for instance, um, I'll bring up Atlantis. Uh, Plato's story of Atlantis and the major catastrophe there. Everyone's heard about that. Many people have either dismissed it. When I say many people, conventional scientists and archaeologists, or they have said that Plato's dating of Atlantis was off by thousands of thousands of years. So then they tie it to, for instance, an eruption in the Mediterranean that was only a few thousand years ago you know, about a thousand years or so before Plato's time, and they attribute it to that. When you look at Plato's Atlantis and his chronology and turn his chronology into our modern chronology, more or less in terms of B.C., he dates Atlantis back to 9600 B.C., which is within a century or so, of the modern dating of the end of the last ice age is compatible with my thinking now on when the core body of the Sphinx may have first been carved, the origins of the Sphinx. It's compatible, not even compatible, it's exactly spot on to the dating of a magnificent site I wanna talk a little bit about in southeastern Turkey known as Gebekli Tepe, which is very, very advanced and dates back to nine to 10,000 BC, at a time when classical archeologists were telling me that no sophisticated culture would exist because we were, quote, too primitive. Yes, well, we can, um, we can dive in certainly to the Gobekli Tepe site next. Uh, the only thing I was going to mention just prior to that was the, the idea of, um, I found it fascinating to consider that if, you know, during the ice age, sea levels presumably lower because so much of the water on the earth was frozen and then if that was melted obviously you have a great rise in sea levels and then we've started to discover bit by bit and i'm by no means expert in this territory but there's uh, they've found ruins haven't they i think it's, it's somewhere off the coast of india uh several hundred feet below sea level there's something in japan a big site there and i know that you discuss easter island quite a lot that's been a, right. a source of fascination for you uh, for a long time and you liked the place so much you got married there i first remember reading about easter island it was actually in uh, one of eric von daniken's books and he was speculating about the um the stone heads there being put and lowered from space which is that was his take on it but we know that something went on there that's completely inexplicable but when you talk about sea level i then in my mind had an image of at one time easter island being not the tiny little isolated spot that it is now but actually you know part of a much bigger landmass. I, I think that's very, very possible. Let, yeah, let's talk about this because this is a great topic. We know that sea levels rose. When I say we know, we know from good geology, just straightforward classical geology, that sea levels rose, you know, on the order of 100, 120 meters or more. It depends exactly where you are on Earth. But they rose you know, on the order of, uh, let's say, 120 meters. That is not insignificant. What that means is that you had vast expanses of land that were below sea level at the end of the last ice age. You had, you know, basically much more continentality, much more, you know, bigger continents in that sense. Along the edges, you had certain regions, a place in the um, essentially where uh, modern Indonesia is now. You had essentially a subcontinent exposed. You had parts of India along the coast of India. 
uh, vast expanses exposed where there is now evidence of cities even, of a civilization that was submerged at the end of the last ice age. Going to Easter Island, I think Easter Island is absolutely incredible. It's a wonderful uh, place to visit. I'll be back there actually with my wife next month for a short trip. And as you mentioned, we were married there. Uh, so we love it there. But more importantly for this story, what you have on Easter Island are a couple of things that are very important uh, and very enigmatic in many ways. You have the Moai. You have these huge stone heads and torsos. And many of these Moai are buried up to their chins. Some of them actually buried up to their noses or eyes in sediment. And when I'm saying buried in sediment, we're talking six meters or so in many cases of sediment and it's not a situation i've looked at this geologically and i'll be looking at it further when i get there next month it's not a situation where they were digging holes and the people carving the moai were not digging holes and burying these moai and it's not a situation where there were huge avalanches filling in very quickly around them these moai are very uh tall relative to their size. They would have been knocked over by avalanches or tsunamis, that type of thing. I believe we have a situation where at least some of the Moai are misdated by classical conventional archaeologists. They date most of the Moai to in the range of 500 to 1500 at most years ago. Very, very recent uh, from a geological perspective. What I suspect is the case is that at least some of these Moai, not all of them, because some could be lay a later portion of the tradition, but some of these I suspect go back much, much earlier. And I also suspect that Easter Island was much larger, clearly it was much larger when you had lower sea levels at the end of the last ice age. Some of the Moai, and I believe based on good evidence, that some of the Moai are much older than the other Moai, and these oldest Moai seem to be carved from basalt, not volcanic tufts, as most of the Moai are. So it seems to me that the original Moai, the earliest Moai, are carved from basalt, which is a much harder stone, much harder to carve, but also what's really important is no one has located the basalt quarries where these early Moai were carved. And I believe that, in fact, they're off the coast of Easter Island and they were exposed when Easter Island was larger, when sea levels were lower. And then they were buried. They were covered up by the rising sea levels, which would indicate two things. One, Easter Island was larger and, you know, one could argue therefore more important. But secondly, it shows that people were there. If this is the case, they were carving these at a much more remote period than classical archaeologists suspect. And I want to point out that this is not pure speculation. Uh, the late Jacques Cousteau, when he was diving, he and his divers were diving around Easter Island. They noticed in basalt off the coast, very regular sort of rectangular carved out areas, which they didn't pay much attention to because they weren't thinking about, they weren't looking for quarries, but I suspect that these might actually be the quarries they stumbled upon, uh, which have since been 
covered over by the rising ocean levels. So a lot of work to do there. I also want to mention that on Easter Island, and this ties in, there is the mysterious Rongo Rongo script, and that has become a major portion or a piece of the puzzle, should I say, I believe, as to solving these mysteries also. So we might want to get into that. Yes, we can certainly touch on that um, if we have time, because, again, it's so many of these aspects are sort of almost books unto themselves. You, you could go into it in that amount of depth. But to go back to where we touched upon the uh, Gobekli Tepe site, which is this enormous site that's been discovered in Turkey, and only a tiny portion of it so far has been excavated. And this is dated back much, much uh, longer in time than, um, you know, what we think of as ancient Egypt to a time when it was theoretically the end of the Stone Age. So, you know, men were you know, living in caves and it was extremely primitive. And yet this site is anything but primitive, uh, even by ancient standards. And it's not that the evidence coming forth from something like this, and I say so much still to come, is negating you know, all of the chronology of the last 5,000 years. It's just that there was something prior to that. You know, it's just that civilization just didn't begin 5000 BC. It's not saying that everything that we have pieced together since then, it has to be thrown out. It doesn't. It just needs to be added to and amended where the evidence supports that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And this is one point I've tried to make to some of my critics when they say, oh, you're saying we have to throw out everything we know. I'm not saying that at all. Because as you said, we do have a good concept of what was going on over the last 5,000 years from about, say, 3,000, 3,500 BC to the present. But I believe what the evidence is indicating, my work on redating the Great Sphinx, the work at Gebekli Tepe, which we'll talk about in just a second, other evidence as developing, some of which it's much um, newer evidence and it's still developing. But as I was mentioning with Easter Island, what is indicated to me very clearly is that civilization reemerged about 3,500, 3,000 BC. And yes, we could have a good handle on that, but there's much more to the story going back thousands and thousands of years earlier. At this point, I believe we have very, we can be very confident that there was genuine, what I call civilization at the end of the last ice age, nine to 10,000 BC. Uh, and that's 11 to 12,000 years ago, which is incomprehensible according to the standard archaeological paradigm, which says that people were just in the Stone Age, they were very primitive, they were hunters, they were gatherers. And so I think this is really a revolution, has to really be a revolution in our thinking, a change in our paradigm, which is adding on to what we already know. Uh, To describe Gebekli Tepe, just want to make a few points. Gebekli Tepe is primarily composed of what people can think of as stone circles or stone enclosures. Everyone's familiar with Stonehenge in the UK, in England. Stonehenge is composed of uh, set pillars in a circular arrangement. What we have at Gebekli Tepe is stone circles like that are stone enclosures but instead of having one or even two there are over 20 of them maybe 22 or so 
have been located so far geophysically. They've not been excavated. Dr. Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute is excavating the site. He has uncovered good portions of four of them so far. And those four that he's uncovered up to now are absolutely incredible. If you think of Stonehenge, the pillars of Stonehenge are sort of squat, uh, rel proportionally, yeah, they're huge pillars, but they're sort of squat, they're rough hewn. Those at Gebekli Tepe are much more finely carved. They're beautifully carved. They're sort of T-shaped. They're T-shaped with a horizontal portion on the top, all carved from one piece of limestone. The carving is incredible, very smooth, very fine, very perfect. And they're not just plain pillars. They are carved with animals in relief on them. There are three-dimensional sculptures that are on at least one of the pillars. There are other sculptures that have been found in context with Gebekli Tepe. Some of the pillars are anthropomorphic or humanoid. That is, they have arms and they have hands, and these hands actually are in a position around the navel or just below the navel and the arms down to the side. And they have belts, a couple of the pillars with the arms and hands. They have a beautiful belt and then a loincloth, which appears to be a fox pelt. So incredibly sophisticated. And just as a side note, some of the motifs that you see at Gebekli Tepe are very, very similar to Easter Island. So what that means is a whole nother issue, uh, but very similar motifs. But game back to Gebekli Tepe, if you found one of these pillars or one of these sculptures in isolation, I would say the average archaeologist, if they were just looking at it out of context, they would say uh, it's maybe 1000, 2000 BC. It's at incredible level. They would say, yeah, this is clearly civilized. This is clearly well carved. Uh, maybe it's a couple thousand, a few thousand years old. Gebekli Tepe, it's been radiocarbon dated in more than one way. There's been very good stratigraphy on it. The entire site was buried intentionally by 8000 BC. So the whole site was buried 8000 BC, that is 10,000 years ago. And the oldest portions, the portions I've been focusing on with these incredible carved pillars go back to the period of 9,000 to 10,000 BC. So they straddle the end of the last ice age. Another way of thinking about this is that Stonehenge, Sumeria, the earliest Egyptian dynasty are about, say, 3,000 BC. That's only 6,000 years ago. Gebekli Tepe was, as, was older to them than they are to us. So just to put it in perspective, for the ancient Egyptians, Gebekli Tepe, the height of Gebekli Tepe, was older to them than the ancient, earliest ancient Egyptians are to us today. So this is really pushing it back. When I first talked about the Sphinx being older, the core body of the Sphinx, the Egyptologist said to me, well, if it's that old, show us some evidence of another civilization anywhere as sophisticated at that level 
that dates back to such a remote period. And I say that we now have it with Gobekli Tepe. We have clear evidence of um, sophisticated culture and civilization going back to this very early period at the end of the last ice age. And to make a long story short, and we can talk about more, I believe that this early flowering of civilization was essentially wiped out by a major solar outburst. And we have lots of geological and actually archaeological evidence at this point that this is what occurred. It wiped out that early flowering of culture, high culture and civilization, essentially set humans into a, we'll call it a dark age for thousands of years until civilization did not arise for the first time, but reemerged about 3500 BC. Yeah, the, and you tie this um, <clears throat> this idea into the fact that um, the site at Gobekli Tepe, as you mentioned, was intentionally buried, um, which in itself seems to be a greater effort than actually building it in the first place. And this, you know, we can speculate about why that might have happened, but you certainly have some very interesting thoughts uh, of your own on that one, don't you? Oh, yes. I mean, this is one of the real mysteries, especially for, well, for everyone, but for classical archaeologists, you don't normally have a site intentionally buried. Normally, when you have an archaeological site, it's been abandoned or it's been reused. I think of Troy. I was visiting Troy, the, the ancient city of Troy, over the summer in Turkey, in western Turkey, and that's a site that was used and reused, and there were wars there, so, you know, it was abandoned and then reused and rebuilt on. That's not what you have at Gobekli Tepe. You have a site that was not simply abandoned. They actually, it actually went through some kind of catastrophe, if you would, because you can see on site that certain of the pillars were knocked down and they actually re-erected them. They put them back into position. They built walls of, between the pillars to, I believe, sort of support the pillars, maybe to try to protect themselves to a certain extent. Then eventually, I don't want to say they gave up, but it strikes me that maybe what happened, they realized things were getting out of control. They just you know, something was happening and they put incredible amount of effort into burying, covering over the entire site artificially, I believe, to protect it. Uh, they put arguably as much energy, different type of energy, but as much energy, probably more energy into building essentially an artificial mountain over this huge complex. And I believe what they were doing was trying to protect it, whether it was to protect it and maybe uncover it again in the future after the catastrophes left, after what was happening, um, you know, calmed down, or if they were trying to protect it for posterity. We can speculate. It's very interesting that when I spoke with the local people, the local landowners there, to this day, they had a tradition that there was something important there. It was sort of a, quote, sacred site. Even at the very top of Gebekli Tepe, part of it cannot be excavated because there are, it's essentially a sacred site uh, to the local people. There were referred to loosely as some tombs. 
on top of it, but this was clearly a site that um, was venerated for a long time after it was purposefully covered over. Now, why they covered it over is a big question. Very difficult for classical archaeologists to answer. What I believe was occurring is that you had this major catastrophe, these major solar outbursts, these major climate changes, and everything associated with it, which would have included literally earthquakes, increased volcanic activity, because what was happening at the end of the last ice age is that, as most people know, at higher latitudes, you had huge accumulations of ice. You had ice sheets that uh, went down to lower latitudes, and certainly you have ice sheets now. There was a dramatic warming at the end of the last ice age. It happened within just a couple of years. We know that from ice cores and sediment cores and isotope data and very detailed analysis of climatic data at that time, it may have literally happened overnight that you had this huge increase in temperature. You had massive melting of ice sheets incredibly quickly. You had rising sea levels very quickly. I wanted to focus on the ice sheets for a second. When you have when you have an ice sheet all of a sudden melting very, very quickly, it releases pressure on the crust. It sets off increased earthquake activity. It sets off increased volcanic activity, even quite a distance from where the pressure is being released. And we know this even from modern analogies. Right now, the ice sheet in Iceland is melting very quickly because of modern war global warming, and they are seeing, by order of magnitude, increased earthquake and volcanic activity. I believe that at the end of the last ice age, there was major, literally cataclysmic change on Earth between the solar outburst, between essentially what we would think of as huge lightning bolts hitting the earth, all those technically not lightning bolts, climatic changes. And I believe that the Gebekli Tepe people, as I refer to them, I mean, the world was collapsing around them. And uh, we might think of it as a last-ditch effort to bury this site, to try to protect it. Uh, that's, that's my take on it at the moment. Uh, most people seem comfortable enough with the idea that... Um you know, we've got the evidence of the um, dinosaurs. There it is, you know, we can, we've got fossil evidence that they were here. Uh, it was a very different world when they were around and that they their reign came to a sudden end with a comet hitting the earth. So that's, you know, people are not necessarily freaked out by that. It's like, yeah, that happened. It was devastating. We weren't there at the time. And, but it's almost uncomfortable with the idea that um, they can imagine something like that happening in the future, perhaps. But the idea that there have been these repeated extinction extinction events on a global scale and that one of them might actually have involved an advanced human, human civilization seems to be just a leap too far uh, for most people. Yeah, I would agree. And it's there's no rational basis for that as far as I can tell. It's because they just don't want to deal with that. Their worldview, their paradigm, this is my take on it, doesn't want to accept it. It's much easier, I think, for most people to deal with something or to accept something if it's far away from them in time. 
So if it's 65 million years ago with a huge asteroid hitting the Earth and causing incredible devastation, wiping out the dinosaurs, wiping out many other forms of life, that's fine. It's removed from them by millions and millions, tens of millions of years. They can deal with that if they are talking about the far distant future and, you know, essentially the sun uh, uh, eventually the sun exploding or whatever, expanding, destroying the earth. Well, they can deal with that too, but they very much, and I think it's a psychological thing. They don't want to deal with, or they can't accept that we could have major changes affecting humans. As you say, human civilization, advanced civilizations, they can't deal with major changes uh, affecting you know, us in a close temporal proximity. So they don't want to hear about this. They want everything to be nice and smooth, orderly, you know, within a certain time frame. So they don't, uh, they don't feel um, uh, uh, beleaguered by it, like put it that way. But I think all the evidence indicates otherwise. When you start looking at the astrophysical evidence, you look at isotope data, on solar activity, and this has been very well worked out now, we find, independent of the geological evidence of catastrophes and cataclysms and ice sheets melting, all of that, and extinctions, major extinction events at the end of the last ice age, lots of large mammals, for instance, went extinct. In my opinion, they couldn't survive what was going on as far as this solar catastrophe the solar outbursts. When you look at the evidence based on ice cores and sediment cores, there's also lunar data that you can derive this from. We find that the sun is not stable. It's frankly like any other star. It goes through periods of instability. It's, I believe, has a cycle of on the order of 10 to 13,000 years. It goes through periods of instability. It becomes more volatile, more active. It then goes through periods when it sort of calms down, is not as active. But this is a part of nature. This is a part of, you know, what the sun is all about in its internal dynamics. It builds up this equilibrium and has to relieve that disequilibrium. This happened at the end of the last ice age, there's very good data that the sun was much more active at the end of the last ice age, at Gebekli Tepe time, at core body sphinx time, when these early civilizations were arising. And there was major solar activity movement, major changes on Earth. Since then, the sun calmed down. It's gone through a period of relative calm for thousands of years, and and I don't want to sound alarmist or be a scaremonger, but frankly, in the last century, the last 70 years or so, and especially right now, all the evidence is all the evidence is there that the sun is becoming more active once again. It's starting to get to the point where it looks like it's going to reach levels of activity or is reaching levels of activity that we saw at the end of the last ice age and haven't seen since. And I believe this is just a natural cycle, but we humans can't escape that natural cycle.
And of course, this is not what a lot of people want to hear. It, it really upsets their worldview. And I've had so many people that just talking in casual conversation, they just shut off. They don't they don't want their their comfortable little world disturbed. Yes, well, it's uh, even at a more mundane level, um, the idea of the sun having a significant effect on just, you know, the day to day climate, even in quiet times, um, is certainly unfashionable right now because of the, the, the global warming stroke climate change sort of, um, we can't even call it a debate. It's not that dignified, is it? It's just a war basically going on at the minute. Uh, it's been politicized and there's all sorts of things going on there. But the idea of what you call it cosmoclimatology, which is sort of an emerging discipline of looking at how um, all the bodies and the materials in our solar system and in the wider galaxy act, actually have very profound effects um, on the Earth. Absolutely, absolutely. And just to put this in context, of course, it's very, very politicized. I, I mean, I know this being in academia. I teach full time at Boston University and it's incredibly polarized. It's incredibly politicized. The politically correct science is that global climate change, global warming is being induced primarily by humans, human activity, human uh, release of greenhouse gas, emissions of greenhouse gas. And at least as I look at the data, and I started out assuming, well, that was correct. You know, they must know what they're talking about. And when you look at the data, it does not consistently hold up. There's lots of evidence going through back in geologic time, well before humans had anything to do con even conceivably with climate change, that solar activity and climate change, global temperatures on Earth correlate with each other. And this has been very difficult for some people to understand. When I say some people, scientists, climatologists, in part, they would simply dismiss this as nonsense. They would dismiss it saying things to the effect that the sun's activity doesn't vary enough to have any effect on Earth. What they were trying to say is that the sun doesn't get that much hotter, so to speak, to have an effect on Earth as far as real climate change. In fact, they had the wrong mechanism. What is important, and I'll just try to explain this briefly, is not how hot or cold the sun is per se, more or less how much heat is giving directly to the earth, but solar activity correlates with the magnetic field of the earth. As you mentioned, all these things are interconnected. So the magnet magnetosphere of the earth interacts with solar activity. The sun gives off very strong magnetic fields. It gives off what's known as a solar wind, particles that are coming from the sun. These affect how many cosmic rays come into our atmosphere. Cosmic rays from the galaxy at large uh, enter our atmosphere. Cosmic ray activity and the amount of cosmic rays entering our atmosphere affects cloud cover because cosmic rays, more or less cosmic rays, can affect cloud cover in the form of forming little nuclei for droplets of water. You can think of it that way. So it's not simply that the sun gets hotter and we get warmer, but the sun 
as it's more active, actually sweeps away, in many cases, cosmic rays. We have less cloud cover. Therefore, overall, more energy enters the system. We start to heat up or vice versa. When it's less active, we have less cloud cover. I'm sorry, when it's less active, we have more cloud cover. So it protects us from incoming radiation. So it's a more subtle but more intricate, more um, interconnected system of many different factors. But it's very clear when you look at the data that solar activity is modulating, it is affecting, it is correlating with climate change. And to say that all this climate change is just due to human activity, I think is, I'll put it bluntly, nonsense. The data just doesn't support that. I do want to clarify that, yes, there are such things as greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gases do help increase temperatures, but they're not necessarily the major driving factors. What we actually see in the geologic record, for instance, is that in many cases, prior to humans even being on Earth or prior to humans having any conceivable effect on Earth, should we say, when populations were very slow, hundreds of thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, when populations were very, very low, very ineffective, would not be causing in any conceivable way, greenhouse gases that could affect the atmosphere, what we find is that it tends to be the case that the climate starts to warm up, then greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide follow, not vice versa. And one mechanism, for instance, would be that the oceans, as they warm up, they cannot hold so much carbon dioxide, so they begin to release it. Or and another effect, not or, but and another effect is that as you warm up the climate, you start to melt, for instance, tundra in higher latitudes. You start to release gases from that. Now, once those greenhouse gases are released, they increase what is already a trend of global warming, but they're not the primary factor. So a much more complicated system than you know, simply humans are producing greenhouse gases, and that's what's causing global warming. And I'm all for, you know, environmental uh, issues and using less gasoline, using pet less petrol, uh, using less oil, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, I don't think we should lie or be delusional and, and say this is the sole reason that we have global warming. And it doesn't matter that Al Gore won a Nobel Prize for it, that doesn't make it right. No, and uh, there is such a thing as pollution. There are many types of pollution, and um, people quite often assume that if you're questioning the degree to which um, anthropomorphic global warming is happening, that means that you're denying, either denying that there is a pollution problem or that it's okay to carry on driving SUVs and everybody in China should get one as well. That's two different uh, you know, I, arguments, I, really. Absolutely two different arguments. And just so people know, I mean, among other things, I'm a, a co-author of an environmental science textbook that we use, that people use here in America. I'm not sure if they use it elsewhere. Maybe they use it in the UK, too. It's in English. It's gone through five editions now. So I'm very connected to the environmental movement. I'm a, a very much, I'll call it, you know, supportive of that. But on the other hand, I think we need to look at the real evidence objectively and yeah, I think we should cut back on use of oil, 
use of gasoline. We shouldn't be, you know, polluting. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make the myth of global warming caused by humans real. Just to say a word about the, uh, we touched on it earlier, the possibility of um, catastrophic solar um, outbursts or other solar activity in the future. Uh, and you were saying you didn't want to be scaremongering. In the book, you detail um, data going back a very long time, uh, mapping solar activity. And from that emerges uh, patterns and cycles that the sun tends to go through. Now, these are not hard and fast. You wouldn't expect them to be so. They're like any sort of natural cycle, really. But th there are patterns there. And you do say in the book that at the current time, uh, we're not necessarily looking at such an event round the corner, but we are in a time, if we look across the grand you know, sweep of all the data we have um, of solar activity, that we're in a zone now where we're thinking we're sort of due something. We shouldn't be surprised if something happens now because it has been not only such a long time since it happened before, but also a, a period of time that has repeated. Um, I can't remember exactly how many years in these cycles, but perhaps you can just fill in some of the, the details on that. Sure. The, the sun undergoes a number of cycles, just so people understand this. It goes through a number of cycles from very short-term cycles. One of the shorter term, I'm talking as a geologist, is the 11-year sunspot cycle, and many people have heard about that. It goes through cycles on the order of centuries. It actually goes through cycles on the order of several millennia, several thousands of years. And the cycle that I'm most concerned about, at least in this context, is a cycle of disequilibrium to equilibrium to disequilibrium, if I could put it that way, more or less high and erratic solar behavior, um, high and erratic behavior of the sun with major outbursts and going into a less volatile period, then going back into that erratic or very active period. And this seems to be a natural cycle of the sun. What I believe is happening, to put it crudely, is the sun has all kinds of you know, fusion reactions, all kinds of uh, internal processes. It's giving off tremendous amounts of energy. And that energy, you can think of it as sort of building up, getting pent up in it. And eventually it has to relieve the pressure, if you would, relieve the energy. And it goes through these periods of major, major activity, sort of erratic activity with major solar outbursts. This cycle, I believe, based on the evidence, is on the order of, we'll say, 10 to 12,000 years. And very interestingly, and maybe more than interestingly, for human civilization now, is that the major last major period of high activity, high volatility in the sun was at the end of the last ice age. We know that independently from the geological record, isotope data in particular in ice cores. So the sun was very active at the end of the last ice age, which is about 12,000 years ago. And now all the evidence is that the sun is has completed a cycle and it's starting that high level of activity again and the sun is more active now than it has been for the last 8,000 or more years and it's not just me saying this there have been very reputable papers published for instance in the journal nature arguably the the finest um, 
most prestigious journal, science journal in the world. This has been published in other journals, independent studies, that we are going into a period of major solar activity. The first real evidence of this are, you know, what sometimes we have, there's a saying, I think the shot ac across the bow, the concept of a ship and you know, if you're being attacked in the shot across the bow, the a piece of evidence for this increased activity may be the 1859 Carrington event. In 1859, there was a major solar outburst, uh, essentially what are known as coronal mass ejections, two coronal mass ejections and associate solar flares. They hit the earth and they caused not a lot of damage in 1859 because we were at a very different level technologically but there were telegraph lines that had been set up in 1859, thousands and thousands of kilometers of telegraph lines. They fried the telegraph lines. They set some of the uh, telegraph stations on fire. Uh, there were primitive magnetometers at, in play at the time. They went off the scale like crazy. People saw auroras. People know the northern or southern lights. They saw auroras like that, aurora borealis, but at much, much lower latitudes because, and at a degree, a level that no one had ever seen before in historic times. And this 1859 Carrington event arguably is just a little sort of forerunner of what we may see in, at least from a geologic perspective, not distant future. It's not impossible we could see something like this in our lifetimes. And again, I'm not trying to be a scaremonger or doomsayer, but I'm just being realistic that, you know, th this, these events could be right around the corner. Geologically, they're right around the corner. And it's not just me being aware of this. Uh, NASA is clearly aware of this. The National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. has talked about this. Uh, there have been studies done as to what would occur, what the impact would be if a Carrington-level event, which is very minor from an astrophysical point of view, very minor from a geological point of view, not anywhere close to what happened at the end of the last ice age, and not even, and not anywhere close to what conceivably could happen in the future. But an 1859 Carrington event, a an event at that level, a solar outburst at that level, could cause massive devastation to modern technological society because we are so dependent upon electronics, we're so dependent upon electrical grid systems, and all of those could be essentially destroyed by a massive uh, solar outburst, even at the 1859 level. You would burn out transformers, uh, high voltage transformers, you would have massive blackouts, communication systems would shut down. It, the ramifications would be very real. Yeah, I think sometimes the word scaremonger is used. It's just a way of kind of shooting the messenger that, you know, you pre present some information that's, you know, either completely validated and proven or it has a lot of evidence to suggest that it's valid and could be proven. And people want to say scaremonger because of the ramifications of the evidence. They don't want to look at it. 
I think that you're right. I mean, the Carrington event, um, I've had guests on before who've discussed that, and as you say, really quite modest in sort of um, cosmological terms, but would be devastating today. And we could expect, well, the possibility would be that, uh, you know, the next big solar event could be much, much bigger. I think the, one of the biggest hurdles we would face um, as society, certainly all, most of the societies, as you say, utterly dependent on electricity, would actually be a, a psychological hurdle. Uh, yes, there would be vast physical challenges, but I think um, a lot of people would, um, and you see this in, in other more contained disaster situations where humans are involved, uh, they would basically lose it. You know, they would be unable to keep themselves together to face the physical and technological challenges um, ahead of them. Oh, I, I agree with you. I very much agree with you. And I think you just put very well the psychological aspects. I think that could be the biggest challenge. And I'm someone, if people ask me, you know, well, what should you do to prepare, that type of thing? My answer is, because there are certain, um, how should I say, groups that do take things like this seriously, but seriously in a sense that is not to my taste, should we say. So you have people, I'll call it in the survivalist camp, where they want to stockpile guns and ammunition. You have this in America, at least. They want to build a bunker in the woods, and somehow they think they're going to survive a catastrophe, whether it's a Carrington event or some other catastrophe, on their own. And to me, that's absolutely the wrong approach. And I think it ties in with what you were just saying, the psychological issues. I think what we have to do, if we are going to prepare for this, and I think we need to, is not only do physical things like reinforcing our grid system, having backup transformers in place, you know, having having some kind of physical plan, but I also think we need to develop um, ourselves psychologically and sort of, if I could put it, uh, community relations, you know, relations with people, have a community you can depend on for, for uh, uh, support, psychological uh, support and that type of thing. Not, not a situation where you bunker down in your, in your fallout shelter or whatever and uh, shoot everyone that tries to get your food. Uh, I mean, how long will that last anyway? Exactly. You might as well, you know, just go on top of the nearest mountain and, uh, you know, enjoy the view and go out with a bang if you go, rather than sort of live in, live in a rat hole for a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think one thing, if people ask me, well, what can we do about it if they do want to take this seriously? I think it is to build up uh, social relations, build up a network of a community and do things. I think we as a society... And part of this it ties in with governments. We need to do things that, um, you know, more or less take this seriously, take the possibility seriously. And, and there are certain preparations you can make. I hate to bring it up, but I will because I think it's serious. The nuclear power plants that we have around the world, we've seen what can happen. Fukushima was not that long ago when you knock out power to a nuclear power plant the cooling, the cooling systems don't necessarily function. Uh, lots of virtually all nuclear, commercial nuclear power plants have spent fuel rods, which are highly radioactive on site, being in, stored in temporary storage. You need power to keep water circulating over them, to pump new water in. You need to keep 
them cool. If you lose power to a nuclear power plant, we've seen what the results can be, and it could be a lot worse than Fukushima. So very simple thing in my mind is to make sure that there are good backup generators that are stable at power plants, you know, have a couple of years supply worth of fuel, things like that. I mean, there are things I think that we can do. I also wanted to mention that it's a tricky business, and I find myself in a tricky business because on the one hand, you don't want to be alarmist. At least I don't want to be alarmist. But on the other hand, I think we have to call it the way we see it, and I think we really need to be talking about the evidence, which I believe is very good evidence of what's happened in the past and the ramifications for this in the present and future. I don't know all the details of it, but did you hear recently about, I believe this Italian geologists and seismologists that were convicted of manslaughter? I think it was manslaughter or something like that, because there was a case where there was a major earthquake and a number of people died. And before that, apparently there were a number of foreshocks, what turned out to be foreshocks. And they, I believe, probably in good faith, tried to keep everyone calm and said, oh, you know, nothing big is really going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So people didn't make appropriate preparations. And I believe they were just convicted of um, you know, essentially giving misinformation. I believe a jury found in Italy that uh, they should have known better and they should have been more realistic that, yes, something could happen. Uh, doesn't say it absolutely will, and you can't predicting earthquakes. It's very difficult, uh, but to mislead people, at least that was my understanding, that they were found guilty of misleading people, and that resulted in deaths. So it's it's to me, it's a fine line, you know. Yeah, it's like the crying wolf thing, isn't it? It's a difficult one, or shouting fire in a theater when there is actually a fire. Um, yeah. But um, well. All of the sort of ideas about preparations um, does tie in with um, the section in the book where we actually discuss uh, some stuff around 2012, which people might say, oh, that surely that's a different type of uh, um, author, a different type of book. But it's not so much that you're subscribing to any of the popular sort of, uh, how can I put it, beliefs and sort of cult ideas around 2012, but more that you use it as a gateway into sort of some of what we referred to earlier, myths and legends. And Ancient wisdom, uh, which is sometimes wrapped up in these myths and legends, information that has been left that we're beginning to retrieve and unravel from societies that uh, and civilizations that preceded ours, that can actually tell us something about what has happened, what is happening, what could happen, and just the idea that there are cycles of um, of time and life and humanity, and that we're part of that that grand sweep of history and that, um, you know, we would do well to, to, to look at some of that stuff and what it's telling us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, just to be very clear, and I say this in the book, as you know, I am not expecting the world to end on December 21st, 2012. That's when, you know, at least according to some correlations, some interpretations, the Mayan calendar quote ends, or at least it turns over. But what I do believe is that the ancient peoples, and not just the Mayans, but you see this in one culture after another, one indigenous group after another, one uh, ancient culture after another, they, I believe, had a concept of time 
in terms of cycles. They had a much better perspective, it seems to me, than most modern people do in terms of duration, in terms of length of time, in terms of looking at longer expanses of time. We are so narrowly focused when it comes to time. And things a hundred years ago for most Americans is a long time ago. Even in Europe, you know, a thousand or two thousand years ago starts to seem like a long time ago. Most ancients, as I've studied them, they thought in terms of thousands and even tens of thousands or more years. And I believe they actually had a good handle on some of these natural cycles that are on the order of thousands to tens of thousands of years. And when you talk about the Mayan uh, culture and their legends and myths, they have some major cycles. One of those major cycles is on the order of about 5,125 years or so, or double that a bit over 10,000 years. And this, I think, could in fact be tied to some of these natural cycles that we see. So when they talk about 2012, if that correlation is correct, in December 21st, that is the winter solstice. I don't take that literally that something's going to happen on the winter solstice 2012, but I do see that potentially as metaphorical, if you would, for sort of a low point and ebbing that we have be, we should be aware at this period is maybe a certain aspect in the natural cycles when we should be warned. And I wouldn't put it past them at this point that maybe they had a concept of this natural cycle in the sun, the solar cycle. Their timing of major cycles seems to be compatible with that. And perhaps they really are warning us that around this period. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, I think, in most people that if they've studied anything about ancient cultures, it's a very common notion and it's stated in different ways. But as above, so below, there is a correlation between what's happening in the heavens, what's happening with the sun, what is happening with the galaxy and what is happening on Earth what is happening in the microcosm, in humans, in human society, in human individuals, that we are connected to the cosmos. And another point I try to bring out in Forgotten Civilization is that a lot of good science now is indicating that is very, very much the case. I'll give you one little example. For instance, it's now been found with incredible statistical accuracy that uh, certain uh, radioactive decay rates actually vary in relationship to where we are in our orbit around the sun. This is not supposed to be the case by any kind of conventional science. To me, it's just one little tip of the iceberg, if you would, of how everything is interrelated. Um, and we fool ourselves if we try to deny that or escape that. Yeah, this is a whole... Again, this could be a whole program in itself, a section towards the end of the book where you start to talk about some of the new science, which is unpicking some of the basic tenets of current science, um, and which in itself informs um, our basic understanding of reality. And as you mentioned, so much of what's happening um, on the Earth correlated with astronomical 
uh, processes. And also the thing which fascinated me most was specifically that these are not random. And not only are they not random, there's, there, there's patterns in there, but they can also affect our consciousness, not just, you know, gross matter, as it were. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we, I mean, consciousness is so much in my mind. Uh, it's so important and so unexplored in a serious sense. And uh, this, this is something that, yeah, yeah, we're, we're finding there's now lots of good evidence developing that what we could call very subtle things, and sometimes people want to deny this. When I say people, I'm talking academic scientists, things like very small changes in our geomagnetic background, our, the, the electrical and magnetic frequencies that bombard us all the time, that can affect how we think and our, our emotions, our feelings, our consciousness. And, and this is now well established. Yeah, there's two, um, referring to what we were just talking about with regard to ancient wisdom, there's um, a couple of points um, which in the book which summed it up very nicely for me regarding cycles of time, life and humanity and what the ancient wisdom is telling us. Um, so I just like, it really resonated with me. So I'll just share those in the hope that, that they will with other people as well. And that's basically that these cycles of time, life and humanity, uh, they materially, mentally, and spiritually impact humanity. That is, we are not immune to the larger influences of nature and the cosmos. And also that there have been other ages and there will be more in the future, some better and some worse than the present age. Indeed, ancient traditions agree that we uh, are currently far from a golden age. Rather, most such traditions would place us in an age of coarse materialism with diminished mental and psychic abilities and a lack of understanding of that, which is genuinely important. And for me, that was just kind of like, well, yeah, that's us. Thank you. Yeah. And I believe that. I believe this is what, um, you know, when you really look into this uh, and people don't want to face things like this. Every, you know, there's so many people, I believe, that want to think that we are the height and the end all and be all of, you know, not just humanity and civilization, but, you know, it, it's almost like a medieval belief that we are the epitome of creation, that we're the best there ever could be and ever has been. And I, I don't quite see it that way. No, and, and perhaps to to wrap up for today, I mean, your book as a whole is based in hard data, hard science, and it's all set out there and people can explore it in more depth if they wish to. And you do engage in some speculation, but you're always very clear about when you're saying, mm, perhaps this is something we should explore, or, or maybe it happened like this. But what it boils down to is that ancient wisdom, traditions, how we feel something at the, the core of our being psychically, and a stack of hard science is pointing us in the direction that we are in the cusp of major change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we have to acknowledge and I'm hoping that people will. I feel like, you know, this, there's an important message here. Well, Robert, uh, before we call it a day, perhaps you'd like to share with the listeners uh, details of where they can get your books, including the new one, Forgotten Civilization, and uh, your website and any other information you'd like to share. Okay, that would be great. I, I'll start with the website. 
And so people know my name is Robert Schock, and the last name is spelled S-C-H-O-C-H. So that's important to go to the website. When you go to the website, it's www.robertschock.com. And again, for the Robert Schock portion, it's all one word. For the website, R-O-B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-C-H. So www.robertschock.com. And Forgotten Civilization, my new book, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future, in which I discuss in more detail everything we've touched on and more, is available. I'm hoping it will be available in all good bookstores, as they say. But perhaps the easiest way to obtain it is through Amazon. I know it's available both in Amazon.com in the U.S. and Amazon the UK Amazon, Amazon, I guess it's Amazon.co.uk. And also I wanted to mention, if you go to my website, you'll see, you can click on the uh, picture of the cover of the book there. Also, if you go to the website, I am having um, a couple of trips. I've taken people to see Gebekli Tepe in Turkey. We went this past summer, had a great time. I've done a lot of work in Egypt. And I have a trip to Egypt coming up that I'm inviting people to join me. So information about that can be found on my website. And it's not posted yet, but I am thinking about taking people to Turkey again who would like to join me next summer because I want to get back. I'm going to go back to see Gebekli Tepe because Klaus Schmidt from the German Archaeological Institute continues to excavate there. So I'm trying to make a regular trip a regular basis going back to see as more materials uncovered so www.robertshock.com and it's been great being on the show thank you thank you very much robert for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com well that's it for another week as always thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the show please check out the website where you will find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics until next time i'm greg moffat and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com